I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We are close to landing the plane, so to speak, in this particular series. Uh, Since the middle of April, we've been studying the first uh, three chapters of this book, and today we'll finish up, Lord willing, chapter chapter 3. Next Sunday, we'll devote one sort of final message to summarizing the ground that we've covered and looking at some key principles and some key implications uh, from this, from really this entire section of, of Scripture. Uh, our goal from the, from the very beginning has been to, to see more clearly the person of Christ uh, and His involvement in, in the life of His church as head of the body and as Lord of His people, and as the Savior who redeems and the judge who assesses every congregation and responds appropriately and always righteously. So that's really been one of our goals, is just to, to, to know more about Christ. It's also, I think, been a goal for us as we've gone through these chapters to learn as much as we can from these seven royal letters in chapters 2 and 3, so that we can examine our own lives to see if we are really and truly living in light of the end. You'll remember we started this series in just the first few verses of chapter 1 where uh, it says there in verse 3 that the time is near. So one of the questions that I pray has been sort of rolling around in your minds as we've gone through this series is, are we doing that? Uh, Are we as Christians living with the end in mind. So we want to examine our own lives, uh, certainly on an individual level, and I think we want to go beyond that and even uh, take these lessons and examine Faith Community Church, examine, examine the church that the Lord has providentially placed us in, to think about what Christ would want us to know about Him, because in every one of these letters, Christ had specific things about His character that He wanted the church to remember and they all always tied into the specific set of circumstances and the struggles that those churches were facing. So we want to think about that. We want to think about what Christ would want us to know and remember about Him. We want to think about what He might say about our deeds and our works. If Christ uh, were to examine our church and all of the, the, the activities and all of the, the works and all of the the actions and the programs and the behavior and the conduct of our church, what would he have to say about those things? He certainly knows. Uh, We would want to consider, I think, what kinds of qualities about us that Christ might commend. We'd want to think about those things that if Christ examined our our church, that he would commend us for certain things, and Christ does that uh, in a number of these letters. Along with that, I think we would want to think about the things that might invite Christ's reproof and His rebuke, those things that might cause Him to, to, to say stern words to us and in the form of, of correction and exhortation uh, and words of ad- admonition. So it's important, I think, for us to consider those kinds of questions. What, what kind of counsel would Christ offer to Faith Community Church? What, what kind of promises would Christ extend to our church family in light of the things that we're dealing with. All of these, all of these, all of these are important things, I think, to, to think through. So 
We've been working our way through these letters. Of course, we've said uh, over and over again that these were letters from the Lord Jesus Christ to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And along the way, we've been pointing out some of the unique features of each church because they all had, you might say they all had distinguishing marks or they all had dominant uh, characteristics and traits about them. And each one, I think, provides for us an example of the kinds of churches that have existed all throughout the history of the church since the day of Pentecost. For example, we have seen a church that fought against doctrinal error uh, and doctrinal heresy, uh, but um, was rebuked by the Lord for a, a lack of love. We've also seen a church that was spiritually alive but facing martyrdom, a church that was materially Uh, financially poor, but yet Christ says that they were spiritually rich. We've seen a church that had not denied the faith, but wasn't willing to deal with compromise in in the church family. And so they began catering to the world and to the world's values. We've seen a church that exhibited love and faith only to be condemned for an unwillingness to practice church discipline. Where some good things were going on in the church, but but full-blown sin had taken place and the majority in the church seemed to have been involved in it. We've also seen a church that was living off of its reputation, but had no reality. This is the church that had a name, but Christ said it was actually dead. And then last week we looked at another church, the church at Philadelphia, We said this was the unassuming church. This was the church that was modest. This was the church that was not pretentious or arrogant, but a church that was centered on the word of Christ and was steadfast in those things. So they were steadfast in the word of Christ, and they did not deny Christ's name, even though they endured much. We're dealing with a lot of pressure. So this was the the faithful church. And this morning we come to the final church, the one that made Jesus gag, the one that made Jesus sick, the local fellowship that was full of arrogant and self-sufficient materialists, the congregation that was full of itself but empty of Christ. Let me read our passage for us. We're picking up here in Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. 
He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the way this starts out is familiar to us at this point. It begins there, you'll notice in verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write. So this is letter number 7 carried by messenger number 7. And as I mentioned, this group of seven men left the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos carrying these letters back to their respective churches. And as they reached their particular city the group diminished one by one. So at this point, there, were, there would only be one left who would have traveled from Philadelphia to the city of Laodicea. So the, the last of the seven messengers was left to carry out, probably alone, his mission, which must have been quite stressful considering his was the task of conveying the most solemn message and piercing rebuke given to any of the seven churches. As this letter was given, it was given to what we know as a lukewarm church, which is the most dangerous kind. Because when people come into a lukewarm church, you can't get clarity on anything. When you come into a lukewarm church, everything is is blurry, everything is fuzzy. And if people don't hold to the same beliefs, they all just agree to make peace. It's just sort of a, it's really just a a pseudo-peace. So there's, there's really no firm convictions in that church. Everything is just sort of vanilla when it comes to doctrine and, and, and theology and convictions. And of course, false teachers and Satan himself love these kinds of churches. They love it when the lines are not clear and things are not definitive, where there is no certainty, where there is, there is no objectivity. This was Laodicea. Now, throughout our time looking at these seven letters, we've tried to use a, a similar outline each week, and we'll continue sort of in that vein this, this morning. Uh, we've just done that just to sort of highlight some of the, the similarities and some of the differences between these letters and just give us sort of a, 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 some tracks to run on. But let's look first at the location of the church, the location of the church, which is the city of Laodicea. And just some important facts to, to note. The city had been founded in the 3rd century B.C. by Antiochus II, who named the city after his wife. Uh, It was also the most easterly and southernmost of the seven churches addressed, about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, making it the natural uh, terminal destination for those responsible for circulating these letters as well as the book of the Revelation. Moreover, it was situated in the Lycus Valley at a critical juncture on a major highway which made it an important travel intersection, and so you had various uh, number of roads that crossed through this particular section of the region. And it was part of a tri-city area with the town of Hierapolis, six miles to the north, and the city of Colossae, about ten miles to the east. So it was in a good spot with the valley, it was in the valley, and then you had this sort of around that, 
uh, was, was sur- these surrounding mountains. And so it was a, a fairly decent location, but it did have one major vulnerability. And that was the fact that the city was dependent on others for its water supply. In the early days of the city's settlement, water from the local uh, streams were sufficient, but as the population increased through the years, it became necessary to bring water from other areas via these underground uh, aqueducts. So most likely the water supply for the city came from a hot mineral uh, spring. Uh, Some believe it was about uh, five miles away from uh, the city proper. Uh, but by the time the water reached the city, it was essentially tepid water. It was, it was uh, only slightly warm, which made it unpleasant to the taste. But for the most part, its location made it a great commercial center. It made it a great financial center as well as an important manufacturing center. The major product was, was a widely sought-after soft wool that was glossy black in color, Uh, This uh, wool was woven into garments for local use and uh, exported in in trade and became sort of a luxurious novelty. So there was just the the qualities of this particular wool were were very unique, and so there was a very high demand for that. Laodicea was also the seat of a famous school of medicine. Though the pagan temple alongside which the school grew up was about 13 miles to the northwest. So the temple of the Phrygian god Menkaru was the center of society and administration as well as of religion for the valley where Laodicea was located. But it was at this school where the Laodicean physicians advocated the compounding of medicines and mixing various medicines for compound diseases. They actually developed a well-known medicine that was applied to the eyes to cure eye diseases. Uh, this, this eye salve that they would put on a patient's eyes, which would bring some measure of comfort and healing. So commerce, manufacturing, and medicine combined to make Laodicea a, a very, a respectively speaking, when we looked at all these different uh, cities in Asia Minor, but respectively speaking, this was a wealthy city. So wealthy that when the city itself, we talked about this um, in a previous message, but this particular region was often rocked by earthquakes, and there was a particular earthquake in A.D. 60 which destroyed the city of Laodicea, but the the city seemed to have been in such a financial uh, state and and, and healthy enough financially that they did not require any assistance from, from Rome. And so they basically had the resources unlike most of the other communities that were affected by those earthquakes, they had enough of their own resources to to rebuild their own community. And it was a city with a mixed population. There were a number of Syrians that uh, lived there. There were some Macedonian colonists uh, and a significant number of wealthy Jews. In fact, there's a reference in the Talmuds that suggests that the Jews of Laodicea were the apex of ease and laxity. So that's just some things about the particular city, the particular, particular town, and you'll see as we go through this that a lot of the features of this community tie into the, the message that Christ gives to the church itself. 
Now, what about the history of the church? What do we know about this particular fellowship? Well, the introduction of Christianity into this particular area, this Lycus Valley region, can be sketched from various New Testament passages. The Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 16, verse 6, prohibited the Apostle Paul from entering this particular area. Uh, That was in about A.D. 50. But he did reach the city of Ephesus in A.D. 52, and while ministering in Ephesus, Epaphras evangelized the Lycus Valley, primarily Laodicea. We know that from Colossians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Now, by the time Paul wrote Colossians in A.D. 61, during his first Roman imprisonment, he, had, he, had, he says in, that, that in, the, in the letter to the Colossians that he had not personally visited Laodicea, had not personally visited Colossae, according to uh, chapter 2, verse 1. However, he had written the people a letter, which some believe is actually the New Testament epistle named Ephesians. And it is also plausible that Archippus, a son of Philemon, according to Philemon verse 2, was responsible for the church in Laodicea, according to what is stated both in Philemon and also in Colossians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. So we don't know a lot about the church, but we can, we've had some of these churches where we knew very, very little except for what was in the letter that Christ wrote to the churches itself. But in this case, we can piece some of these, some of the history there about this church, this group of believers, put some of those pieces together from some references in the New Testament. Now that brings us to the identification of the author of this letter. And the author, as we've noted, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he identifies himself to the church in verse 14 in this way. He says of himself that he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So he is the amen, which means to be firm. It means to, it implies the idea of certainty. Now the word amen is often used in Scripture as a word to affirm the truthfulness of a statement or the veracity of a statement. Sometimes it's used before a statement, and when that happens, it's usually translated and sometimes it's doubled. And so you have, a, particularly in the Gospel of John, you, have, you see this statement in your Bibles, verily, verily. I say to you, and then Jesus speaks, or he'll say, in some translations, it's truly, truly, but in the Greek language, it's amen, amen. And it's to affirm the truthfulness of what what follows those words. At other times, you see it at the very end, and there, there it is at the end to sort of seal the certainty of what has just been said. And so you'll sometimes find a statement and then the word amen, and it's just bringing, again, it's just speaking to the veracity of that. It's just speaking to the, the firmness of what has just been said, often cases things that have been promised. So it just means it's firm, it's fixed, it's certain, it's unchangeable. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, writes this, he says, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes, therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. So what does Paul mean by that? Well, he means that all of God's promises and all of God's covenants are guaranteed and affirmed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So that everything that God ever planned and everything that God ever purposed for man, everything that God ever promised for man, finds its amen in Jesus. 
that God's promises are all certain in Him. Jesus Christ is the one who confirmed all of the promises. So Christ begins here by claiming to be the amen. He is the truth. He is fixed. He is unchangeable. He is credible. And all that he says will be accomplished. More specifically, it says here, he is the faithful and the true witness, which was similarly stated back in chapter 1, verse 5. That is to say that he is God's reliable witness. He is the one who is faithful to do what God has promised. He is the one who carries out the covenant and ratifies it and fulfills all of it. Interestingly, this is terminology that is likely pulled from Psalm 89, which is a a psalm about the Davidic covenant and God's faithfulness to bring a king on the throne of David who would be a ruler forever. The whole psalm in Psalm 89 is is really about God's faithfulness. So Jesus Christ is God's faithful and true witness, trustworthy in every way, affirming the truth of God in everything that He says, and something that stands in stark contrast to this particular church, which was neither faithful nor true. Then we have that final title adopted by Christ in verse 14. It says, He is the beginning of the creation of God. Which cannot mean that He is the first created being. That's not really the force at all of this particular term. Rather, He is the source of creation. Uh, The word is arche. Arche is the, the Greek term. It's he is, the, he is the arche of the creation. Paul uses very similar terminology in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where he calls Christ the firstborn of all creation. And then in Colossians 1, verse 18, where he calls him the beginning, the arche. In other words, Jesus Christ is, it might be better said, not so much the beginning, but he's the beginner. He is the beginner, or you might say, the originator of creation, not the one begun. We know that. John would affirm that, certainly. He wrote about it in John 1, verse 3. All things came into being through Him, speaking of Christ, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So He is the creator. He is unique. He is preeminent. He is the one who has created the entire universe and the one who will in the future create the new heaven and new earth following his thousand-year reign on earth. Now, why does the Lord remind the church at Laodicea of these realities about his person? Well, obviously, these titles prepare the way for the searching and the severe criticism that follows. And so it's as if Christ is saying, I'm about to say some hard things to you and just know that when I say these things, these are true things. And when I promise these things, I'm going to promise, these are promises I'll keep. And when I bring these warnings, these are warnings that I will follow through on because he is the truth. These statements are, are faithful and reliable. So that's one reason why I think he might be pointing to these particular things, but it's also been suggested that Christ was correcting their errant view of who he was and is. 
That is to say that they may have had a heretical Christology. In other words, they may have had a heretical view, uh, an unorthodox view of the person of Christ, which could have actually led to their dreadful condition as a church, or the other way around, that their love of sin and prevailing pride led them to adapt and adjust their view of Christ, downgrading His person so that they could be more comfortable in their sin. And you'll see this in the life of people, people that begin to to stray away from the Lord in their their life, in their their morals, and in their ethics. Sometimes you, you think to yourself, well, did they go down that road of immorality because of their doctrine not being right? And that may be the case. But I think more often than not, it's that they wanted their immorality and they changed their theology and doctrine so that they could continue in their, in their immorality. And that takes us to the criticism from Christ. The criticism from Christ. And you'll notice that there is no commendation, only words of rebuke and correction, the exact opposite of the church at Philadelphia. In fact, Laodicea has the grim distinction of being among all seven letters the only one in which Jesus has nothing good to say. Verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So he says, I know your deeds, and we've seen Jesus say this already. In fact, we've seen this phrase four other times, and it speaks about more than simply the deeds done. It speaks of those works that reflect the life and conduct and that give evidence of the inward spiritual condition that the Lord alone sees and knows, the things that prove the kind of people that they actually are whether good or bad. So it's not just a matter of Jesus looking at, their, at the things they're doing in their life. He's saying, I know your deeds. I know the things that you've done, but I know how those things you've done connect to the condition of your heart. They're revealing things about your heart. We oftentimes see the fruit in a person's life, but have a hard time sort of connecting that back to a heart condition. Jesus says, I see all that. I know all that. I know what's going on. I make that connection. And so when he says, I know your deeds, he's just simply saying, I know everything about you. (laughs) I know you from the inside out. You're not not fooling me in these matters. So whether good or bad, that's the case. And, And what is it in this particular situation? Well, Christ says basically this. He says, I know about your spiritual mediocrity, that you are neither cold which I think is just a a way of speaking about an open antagonism to the truth. So he says, I know that you are neither cold or openly antagonistic to the truth, nor hot, which I think just speaks to a demonstration of spiritual fervor, which Christ says, I wish you were, because these are things that you are to be earnest about. They're, They're definitely serious things to be considered. In other words, Jesus says their their ministry was spiritually bland. Neither fervency nor hostility when it comes to the truth. 
So they were never really boiling over in their devotion to Christ. They never took a strong definitive stand for anything that they claimed to stand for. They also were never a catalyst for spiritual growth in the lives of other people. And and yet, on the other hand, they were never cold. They never expressed being offended at the truth or the gospel, likely because there wasn't enough truth being preached to get anyone upset. So they never upset anyone else with the truth because they themselves were never upset by the truth. And Jesus says, I wish you were cold or hot. That is to say, when it comes to the truth, blatant is better than bland. You either love it or hate it. But at least it is recognized as something that is definitive enough that there is a line that polarizes the human heart and calls for a commitment. That at least you're compelled to face these things. So this was the problem at Laodicea. It was this problem, uh, this disaster of spiritual mediocrity, or you might say spiritual apathy, a kind of of repulsive indifference mixed with a glaring self-sufficiency, a a lukewarmness or a a half-and-half position that was so revolting to Christ that he threatened to spew or to vomit them out of his mouth, which is, which is very personal. The way that he, he says this, it just comes across as a very personal thing. This is one of the things that we recently in, in, a, in our Sunday school hour, Bible study hour, we went through the book of Hosea. And one of the things we had to keep coming back to was that, you know, oftentimes we think about our, uh, our disobedience as simply some, breaking some kind of standard. God has has declared some sort of standard, and we've trespassed that standard. And that is one way of thinking about our disobedience. But But the thing that Hosea continues to drive at is that you've got to think about your sin as something that is a personal offense to God. So personal that he describes it in terms of of marriage, right? He he describes it in in terms of disloyalty, of, of breaking a covenant. So this is a very personal thing when Christ says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, why would he do that? Because the church made him sick. Which raises the question, I think, were these people truly saved? Were they truly saved? Well, I do think there were some, perhaps a few people in the church who were genuine believers but because they were so small in number or, or so insignificant in their influence that the Lord didn't find it necessary to acknowledge their presence as He did in the other letters. You may remember this. A couple of the other letters that you would find these phrases about some of you or there are a few of you. And so it seemed to be in the previous six letters that if there were true believers present, Christ would identify them. And in this particular letter, He doesn't do that. And yet I think that they did exist, but were probably very small in number. But for the most part, I think this church was an unregenerate church. Not a church made up of Christians who once walked with the Lord and were on fire for Him and then simply cooled off. But a church made up of men and women who may have professed faith in Christ, but hypocritically. 
not having in their hearts the reality of what they pretended to be in their actions. You know, it's it's true that there are many in the world who are completely cold to the things of Christ. The gospel leaves them absolutely unmoved. It, It arouses no spiritual response. They have no interest in Christianity, no interest in the church. They, 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 they make no pretense. They're, they're, they're certainly not uh, hypocrites because they don't even go near the things that have to do with Christ. They're simply lost and could care less. They don't want, want to hear the Word of God at all. On the other hand... Genuine believers are, mar- are marked by a response to spiritual truth and they're zealous and they're fervent about it. And he's saying, I think metaphorically, I can take it if you were hot because then you would be real. And, and I could even take it if you were cold. That's better than being the foul water that's polluted and lukewarm. So who are they? I think that mainly the people Christ is addressing here in this church are professing Christians who go to church and claim to know the Lord but are not saved. They're content. They're content with self being self-righteous and they're content with their self-righteous religion. They're, they're hypocrites that are playing games. They're the kind of people described in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, Many will say unto me, or, or say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. That you may have done many works in my name, and you may have prophesied in my name, and you may have cast out demons in my name, but I don't know you. They're like those in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5 who have a form of godliness but without power. They're like the Jews in Romans 10 who have a zeal for God, but not according to a true knowledge. They're just hypocrites, touched some way by Christianity, but not belonging to Christ. And perhaps in the midst, there may have been a small number of hopefuls, true believers, that had adapted so much to the environment around them, and become so worldly and become so arrogant that they too had something obnoxious about them. They were room temperature. And they nauseated Christ. And yet, the long-suffering of our Lord is mind-blowing as He holds out an opportunity for repentance. This is to me one of the shocking things about this particular last letter is it's on the one hand, it's, it's one of the most severe letters of the seven, and yet it is probably filled with more sort of uh, promises or, or this extension of grace and mercy than is in those other letters. In fact, next week, I'll try to, to have for you a, a, a sort of a chart of all of these seven letters in the churches and the things that were commended and rebuked about them, so you'll be able to see that those differences a little bit more Clearly. But this long-suffering of God is amazing as He holds out an opportunity to repent. And that takes us to the exhortation from Christ in verses 17 to 19. Verse 17 says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Just stop there for a minute. This, This is about their self 
appraisal. Okay, so Christ is speaking to this is what this is how they view themselves. We're rich. In fact, we're not just rich, we have become rich due to our own exertions, due to our own savvy, due to our own, our own skill. So they said, we're wealthy, and what they really meant is that they were spiritually wealthy. So that even though this, the community around them, the city itself was indeed wealthy, and they as a church may have had money, that really is not the issue here. They're, they are essentially making the claim that they were fine spiritually, that everything is okay. And not just okay, but they were rich in these things. So they weren't just getting by spiritually. They're claiming that they are well-to-do spiritually. Because of that, they had this attitude, we don't need any help, not even from God. But, but that doesn't all line up with their true condition, does it? That's their self-assessment, but what's their true condition? Christ says, basically, you're clueless, right? You are clueless. You have no idea. Because in reality, you are, are wretched. It's a word that means distressed. So you think everything's fine. You're actually distressed. Uh, You are miserable, which is a word that speaks of pity. So they think everything is fine. And Christ is saying, you actually are, you are to be pitied. You're in such sad shape. Then he goes on, you're poor, which is again, just just a a, a radical, sort of an eye-opening remark for this group of people that of, of all these things are claiming that they're rich. He says, you're poor, you're destitute like a person who crouches and cowers as a beggar. You're spiritually blind, he goes on. You're naked, or this is not, you're totally exposed, right? Henry Alford, uh, their own self-assessment, he says, it was a baseless fiction. A.T. Robertson said it this way, they were rich in pride, poor in grace, and ignorant of their poverty. So Christ says, you say, you say that you don't need anything. And I'm telling you that you couldn't be more blind. Now, to a people with such desperate needs, notice the offer that Jesus extends to them in verse 18. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, it's, just, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. that Christ essentially counsels them, right? I mean, at this point, after what Christ has said, you would expect the hammer to fall, the sword to fall. And yet Christ and the word here is, is interesting. It's just, I, I advise you, right? I mean, the, the tenderness of, of Christ in this verse, he, he counsels them, which, which again, alone is amazing. And the substance of the counsel is essentially to buy. But it's dripping with sarcasm as Jesus asked those who live in a city noted for its wealth to purchase what they cannot afford. And it sounds a little strange at first, but this is the same kind of buying that we find in the passage that we read earlier in Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3. I'll read it for us again. 
Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without honey and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. So this is the kind of buying that acknowledges its weakness. It's the kind of buying that acknowledges its inability and recognizes its, 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 its desperate situation. It's true condition. That is the offer. That is the offer. Buy from me. Don't turn inward, right? Because that's the most common thing that people do, right? When they get in these situations, they tend to, to, to try to find some kind of direction, some kind of leadership, some kind of truth in themselves. And Christ says, that's the last, that's what got you into this mess in the first place. That's the problem to begin with. Don't turn there, don't turn inward. That's totally subjective. You want something that's, that's, that's truthful and that's reliable and that won't change? Turn to me. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Now, what does he tell them to buy? Well, he tells them basically three things. Refined gold, which I think represents genuine faith. It's a, it's a strengthened faith. A faith that withstands trials and results in works. He tells them to purchase white garments, which I think represents, uh, you might say, a new heart that is inclined toward righteous deeds so that they will not be disgraced when Christ returns. So it's not simply about that they would do more deeds. It's really that they would have a transformed heart. They would have a change going on in the inner man that would then work its way out in acts and deeds of obedience. And I salve, which signifies illuminating grace that removes self-deception and bestows spiritual vision so that they might see and keep seeing. And then in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Which tells us that lukewarmness is not necessarily terminal. So here's the call, repent, which is in the aorist tense, so it's just it's in a single moment, and be zealous, which is a present tense, so be and continue to be white hot for Christ, or you could say it this way, make a decisive change in your life, and then embrace a new habit and a new pattern of continuing zeal. And what is the incentive? Well, notice, the incentive is that he loves them. He loves them and is committed to train them if they are his children. And if they're not saved, they can still repent and become legitimate children whom he will love and discipline and care for like a parent. And then we have this in verse 20. This promise from Christ. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So he says, I stand at the door. Question there is just, what is it? What is the door? And there there is one popular idea of Christ knocking at the door of a man's heart or a person's heart. But but that is not, I I don't think, that's, that's not what this is about, even though that contains a great truth. I think the better interpretation is that this is the door of the church. 
and Jesus is outside the church waiting to enter. Why? Because the people have shut him out of the church by their self-sufficiency and their hypocrisy. Some commentators also see in this verse a picture of the immediacy of the Lord's coming. And then a sense, a, a greater closeness than in any of the other previous messages. So they point to passages such as Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. James chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So this very well could be speaking about the urgency for the church to seek a right relationship with Christ. His coming is imminent, but he is also long-suffering. So he has taken his stand and he keeps on knocking, but at some point that knocking will come to an end and he will enter earth's scene once again, both to deliver his faithful followers and to punish the rebellious. That is to say, he will judge the unrepentant, he will spew them out of his mouth, and he will reward the faithful. How? What does he say here? I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Which is just a, simply, a simple picture of fellowship. But as we saw last week, any, any near historical fulfillment of this gets swallowed up in that eschatological significance of true believers eating with Christ and ruling with him in the future messianic kingdom. We'll see this over in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. Uh, the, the, the one of the seven angels, John said this, One of the seven angels said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Clearly, this is a picture of ultimate closeness. He says, I with him and he with me. So this is about intimate fellowship. That begins at salvation but continues on forever in different forms. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3, we have the promise to the overcomer, which continues the same future incentive offered to lukewarm in Laodicea. Verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In other words, the genuine Christian... The one who overcomes by faith will join Christ not only in the great future supper, but also will sit with him on his throne to participate in ruling the world. Jesus told his own disciples in Luke twenty two twenty nine, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." The Apostle Paul later expanded the promise to include all Christians as rulers and the broadened domain of the world, not just Israel. So we will sit with Christ on His throne, which is different than the Father's throne. This is the one to which He is heir as David's son. 
And he will occupy it when he comes in his glory. This throne is not the one in heaven that he now occupies with his father. This is the one upon the earth. It's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And then finally, this familiar summons, the command to heed. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, a familiar call, the call to receive what has been written, not just to their church, but to all the churches. Because through these letters, the Spirit is putting before them a choice that is both urgent and one that they cannot avoid. What a crucial word for the church. What a critical message especially for the liberal church, especially for the lukewarm church and for people caught in these churches that deny the the gospel truth or deny the deity and lordship of Christ or deny the veracity or inerrancy and authority of God's word, who come up with their man-made religion under the name of Christianity, who think all the while that they are are academic and well-trained, who think that they're spiritual, who say, we don't need God and we don't need God's truth because we have these other things to inform us. We have evolution that tells us where we came from. We don't need God because we have pop psychology to tell us how to be emotionally whole. Professing Christians who don't know they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, who sicken the Lord, who have deceived themselves, They think about themselves the very opposite of what is actually the case. So it's certainly a message for a lukewarm church, right? It's definitely a message that is relevant for uh, an unregenerate church. But it's also a message for us to guard against pride, to guard against self-sufficiency, to guard against prayerlessness, to to guard against presumptuous thinking and presumptuous living. Because any church can end up over time becoming like the church at Laodicea. Lukewarm, diminishing Christ, full of hypocrisy. So what are the warning signs? that a church is heading in that direction. Well, I want to just do this real quickly before we wrap up. I just want to run through a, a, a quickly through a list of things. And Jerry Ragg has, has helped me tremendously to think through these, these issues. But I want to give you these. There's 15 of them. I'll just comment briefly on each one. But how does this actually play out, right? I mean, I, I can think of some churches that I know of that I would say, now that's a lukewarm church. I mean, that, that's an unregenerate church. But the question is, they weren't always that way, right? So what was the progression of things that took place in that fellowship? Well, let me just walk through these. Number one, the church is not teaching the truth with precision and clarity. And so the church prefers to teach general truth without expounding and heralding the Scriptures the way that God wants them to be taught and preached. And so there's no certainty about these things. There's no certainty about Christ. There's no certainty about doctrine. There's no certainty about the gospel or truth or biblical morality. And so they begin to doubt God's revelation, the revelation that came from the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the apostles, and then now we have this handed to God's people in the form of His written word. 
And what does it say? Man does not live on bread alone, but on generalities in the Scriptures. Does it say that, does it? Man shall not live by bread alone, but on what? On every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But that's not the way the church treats God's word. Secondly, the biblical implications are ignored. And so what, what happens is they, they teach generalities, which naturally results in the absence of the study of the implications of Scripture. The things that implicate you, the things that deal with your motives and your heart and, and the things that smash and crush your idols... That ministry doesn't take place in the church. Your idols are not confronted. Your heart issues are not confronted because we're no longer dealing with implications from Scripture because we're not teaching Scripture with any level of specificity, right, and clarity. And so biblical implications go out the window. Then number three, a superficial peace with weak and sinful believers becomes the norm. That is to say, they get comfortable with each other's sinfulness, So they don't speak the truth in love, they don't confront sin, and they don't do that Galatians 6-1 ministry in one another's lives. They're not not helping other people who are caught in a trespass. And so the lukewarm church wants to smooth everything out so that there's, there's, there's superficial peace in the church, and so that the weak and the sinful become the norm. Number four, convictions about personal holiness as a life pursuit are viewed as overkill. A lukewarm church doesn't want to talk about what the Bible says about holy living. They don't want to do that. They have a, uh, they have a view of grace, but it's not a theological view of grace. It's sort of a view of grace that they have kind of backed into through their lukewarm weakness. And so what you find in, in these churches that, that, that emphasize, I would say, overemphasize the grace of God in in many of those cases, I think all that's going on is that they have a burdened conscience because of a weakness in their life, and rather than deal with their sin and burdened conscience through repentance and personal holiness and pursuing confession and repentance and faithfulness, they, 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 uh, they, they overemphasize the doctrine of God's grace to the expense of a pursuit of holiness among God's people. Number five, preaching morphs into something more palatable, right? Because preachers don't want to appear to be judgmental. They want to appear to be progressive and modern, and so they they adapt the message. Number six, cultural taboos, questionable cultural morals and worldly influences ooze into the body life of the church. And these are always redefined as liberties and freedoms, right? So they're taking on more and more of what the culture is, 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 is pushing at them, but they're, they're putting it under, the, under this umbrella of Christian liberty, which is catastrophic. Number seven, new leaders rise up with unproven or morally weakened character. So the standard for leadership leaves the Scriptures totally behind. There's compromise in new leaders based on a belief that we're all messy and sinners. And I'm just telling you, you can go to a lot of churches in our area and you you look at what's on their website and they just keep talking about we're all a mess, we're all a mess, we're all sinners, we're all sinners. But I'm saying, and we are, we are a mess and we are sinners. But But what I see in a lot of those churches is that that becomes an excuse for not following biblical guidelines for qualifying leaders, right? And for raising up leaders, So we just lower the standard and say, well, nobody could ever do that anyway, right? 
And so warm bodies begin teaching from, from their own opinions. And their character hasn't been proven. Or, or they've already, in some cases, demonstrated moral weakness. But they're leaders anyway. Number eight, social gospel efforts begin to consume the time and resources of the church. Why? Because it's easier to do Christian Peace Corps work instead of emphasizing, again, the polarizing message of God's special revelation in the gospel of Christ. And it's easier to throw money and time at digging wells or building hospitals or ending sex trafficking because it salves the conscience. After all, I'm doing something for Jesus. And so churches get wrapped up in these, in these social issues and, and doctrine and preaching the gospel goes out the window. Number nine, doctrinal statements start to get reworded to be more inclusive and less definitive. They become general summaries without the depth and the breadth of Scripture. Some churches now simply refer to those things as core values. But you wouldn't know the difference between that and what your child might bring home from preschool. I mean, that's how simplistic they are. I saw them this week. I went to different websites. What do you teach? What do you believe? And it's basically five short paragraphs with those scripture references. And that's it. So if you look at their websites, it's all about relationships with people. It's all about authenticity, but not very much about the truth. Number 10, church discipline is abandoned altogether as unloving. Number 11, men abdicate their spiritual leadership in the church and various aggressive women begin to clamor for leadership. Those roles in the church and in the family. Number 12, families start to promote more positive views of cultural morality. Dads and moms begin, become more positive about cultural morality and entertainment, allowing their kids unfettered access to the culture. So children's, the, the children's fashion and entertainment diets are, are all about the world. And families are influenced, right, to move their kids conflict-free into the world at faster and faster paces and rates. But children, even teens, aren't able to navigate the satanic deceptions that are there, and yet the parents keep pushing them in that direction. Number 13, the core marriages of the church are drifting into worldliness. That's why it's important to ask of any church, what are the couples and the marriages like in the church? In lukewarm churches, couples divorce without confronting or confessing sin. Fathers and mothers become narcissistic and neglectful of their parenting. And they're immersed in worldly entertainment. Number 14, truth in the church isn't debated and nobody contends for the truth anymore. Absent from the church are the cleansing of error and preparing for the schemes of Satan. And number 15, if enough people, after all of that, if enough people still feed off their religious appearances, the church still claims to be a vibrant place where sinners can find God. And those churches where they're trying to soften everything, it's the same verbiage. Don't worry about feeling out of place. Don't worry about this being like your grandparents' church, right? Here's what to expect if you come to our church. Relevant messages, spiritual life, a connection with Jesus, lots of programs for your kids, and authentic community. But the kind of church that is marked by these things is a church that turns Jesus' stomach. So we must constantly be on guard, constantly on guard, And I'll add to that, we must also be careful about our own attitudes. It's easy to become angry and hostile towards individuals and churches that are filled with deception and error. 
But we need to be brokenhearted over their condition, just as Jesus was over this church in Laodicea, and just as he was over the city of Jerusalem and the apostasy of Israel. So we take a strong stand on the truth, but we don't ever want to be lacking in compassion. Because God, in his wonderful mercy and grace, could save some of the most proud and deceived people. In fact, if you, would put, if you would put yourself in that category as someone who once denied the Scriptures and fought against Christ and His church and was self-deceived and arrogant, but Jesus in His mercy saved you, raise your hand. Right? God is so rich in mercy. May we never forget that. There are some of you here this morning that don't know the Lord. You may know some things about Him, but you don't have a relationship with Him. Hear these words. Repent and be zealous. Repent. The salvation call always involves repentance which simply means that you realize you're guilty. You realize that you're a vile sinner in the presence of God. You realize that though God has an affection for you and He loves you as He loves the whole world, you're on the brink of judgment. And that you deserve that judgment and that wrath. And along with that, you realize that you can't remedy that. You can't get rid of your own sin. You can't work hard enough to ever gain God's approval. But you can humble yourself. You can humble yourself under that reality and turn from your sin and believe on Christ who died for sinners. And if you'll do that, He will forgive you and cleanse you and make you a new creation. Our challenge to you today is to admit your spiritual bankruptcy, to abandon all self-effort and self-improvement and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for our time this morning in your word. Help us to take this word to heart and to apply it in a way that is fitting for our own lives and for our church. Also help us, Lord, that while hating error, to love those who are trapped in it and to compassionately call them to repentance. Use us, Lord, to reach people in those churches and even in our own fellowship that are lukewarm to lead them to the truth about your Son and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that they might be made complete in Him and go on to walk in Him and be built up in Him for your glory. Amen.